Hi, this is Mitch Album. When I first wrote Tuesdays with Maury, I never could have imagined what it would ultimately become. No writer could. A small labor of love somehow grew into something much larger, and Maury's words and lessons have now been read around the world. With that, I've encountered many questions, often the same ones, and so I thought perhaps I could take the start of this audiobook and answer a few of those questions for you. First question, was I surprised by what happened with this story? Of course. I only wrote Tuesdays with Maury to help Maury pay the enormous medical expenses he had racked up fighting ALS. The publisher initially printed only 25,000 copies, and we all felt we'd be lucky if we sold those. The book was written from the heart and never intended for a large audience, but it has found one nonetheless, and I continue to be amazed by Maury's class size, which grows every day. Second question, was there one lesson that affected me the most? The answer is no. I found myself thinking about all of my conversations with Maury, and at different moments in my life, different things seem to come to mind. I do know what he said about forgiving others has particular resonance, and I often recall when Maury would quote the sentence, death ends a life but not a relationship. What I've come to realize is that, yes, this is true, but in order to have that relationship go on, you have to invest time and effort in it while you're here. Maury made sure his life was about people first, and it's those people who embrace him still. Third question, what was the first thing Maury said to me when we reconnected after 16 years? For some reason, I forgot to include this in the book, but it is a small anecdote worth mentioning. I used to call Maury coach when I was in college. It was a sports affectation, I guess. Hi, coach. How you doing, coach? And when I called him up after seeing him on that Nightline program, a hospice worker answered the phone, handed it to Maury, and I heard his voice say hello. Maury, I said, my name is Mitch Album. I was a student of yours in the 70s. I don't know if you remember me. And the first thing my old professor said after 16 years was this, how come you didn't call me coach? Fourth question, what about Maury's family, and why are they not mentioned more in the book? Maury's loving wife, Charlotte, and his two sons are, of course, in the book, as you will hear, but Maury asked me before I ever wrote a word to always respect their privacy, and I tried to do that when I wrote the book. We maintain a wonderful relationship, myself and the family, and a regular communication. Final question, do you miss Maury? Of course, I miss him every day. But one of the last things Maury asked me to do before he died was to talk to him after he was gone, and I do that all the time. I ask how he thinks we're doing down here. I ask if I'm living up to his lessons. And the funny thing is, sometimes I think I can actually hear his voice answering, just as I hope you will begin to hear his voice in the words that follow. Tuesdays with Maury, an old man, a young man, and life's greatest lesson by Mitch Album. This book is dedicated to my brother Peter, the bravest person I know. I would like to acknowledge the enormous help given to me in creating this book. For their memories, their patience, and their guidance, I wish to thank Charlotte, Rob, and Jonathan Schwartz, Maury Stein, Charlie Derber, Gordy Fellman, David Schwartz, Rabbi Al Axelrod, and the multitude of Maury's friends and colleagues. Also, special thanks to Bill Thomas, my editor, for handling this project with just the right touch. And as always, my appreciation to David Black, who often believes in me more than I do myself. Mostly my thanks to Maury for wanting to do this last thesis together. 
Have you ever had a teacher like this? Tuesdays with Maury. The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his house, by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesdays. It began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. No grades were given, but there were oral exams each week. You were expected to respond to questions, and you were expected to pose questions of your own. You were also required to perform physical tasks now and then, such as lifting the professor's head to a comfortable spot on the pillow or placing his glasses on the bridge of his nose. Kissing him goodbye earned you extra credit. No books were required, yet many topics were covered, including love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally, death. The last lecture was brief, only a few words. A funeral was held in lieu of graduation. Although no final exam was given, you were expected to produce one long paper on what was learned. That paper is presented here. The last class of my old professor's life had only one student. I was the student. It is the late spring of 1979, a hot, sticky Saturday afternoon. Hundreds of us sit together side by side in rows of wooden folding chairs on the main campus lawn. We wear blue nylon robes. We listen impatiently to long speeches. When the ceremony is over, we throw our caps in the air, and we are officially graduated from college, the senior class of Brandeis University in the city of Waltham, Massachusetts. For many of us, the curtain has just come down on childhood. Afterward, I find Maury Schwartz, my favorite professor, and introduce him to my parents. He's a small man who takes small steps, as if a strong wind could at any time whisk him up into the clouds. In his graduation day robe, he looks like a cross between a biblical prophet and a Christmas elf. He has sparkling blue-green eyes, thinning silver hair that spills onto his forehead, big ears, a triangular nose, and tufts of graying eyebrows. Although his teeth are crooked and his lower ones are slanted back, as if someone had once punched them in, when he smiles, it's as if you just told him the first joke on earth. He tells my parents how I took every class he taught. He tells them, you have a special boy here. Embarrassed, I look at my feet. Before we leave, I hand my professor a present, a tan briefcase with his initials on the front. I bought this the day before at a shopping mall. I didn't want to forget him. Maybe I didn't want him to forget me. Mitch, you're one of the good ones, he says, admiring the briefcase. Then he hugs me. I feel his thin arms around my back. I'm taller than he is, and when he holds me, I feel awkward, older, as if I were the parent and he were the child. He asks if I will stay in touch, and without hesitation I say, of course. When he steps back, I see that he is crying. The Syllabus His death sentence came in the summer of 1994. Looking back, Maury knew something bad was coming long before that. He knew it the day he gave up dancing. He had always been a dancer, my old professor. The music didn't matter. Rock and roll, big band, the blues, he loved them all. He would close his eyes and with a blissful smile begin to move to his own sense of rhythm. It wasn't always pretty, but then he didn't worry about a partner. More he danced by himself. He used to go to this church in Harvard Square every Wednesday night for something called Dance Free. They had flashing lights and booming speakers, and Maury would wander in amongst the mostly student crowd, wearing a white t-shirt and black sweatpants and a towel around his neck, and whatever music was playing, that's the music to which he danced. 
He do the Lindy to Jimi Hendrix. He twisted and twirled. He waved his arms like a conductor on amphetamines until sweat was dripping down the middle of his back. No one there knew he was a prominent doctor of sociology with years of experience as a college professor and several well-respected books. They just thought he was some old nut. Once he brought a tango tape and got them to play it over the speakers. Then he commandeered the floor, shooting back and forth like some hot Latin lover. When he finished, everyone applauded. He could have stayed in that moment forever. But then the dancing stopped. He developed asthma in his 60s. His breathing became labored. One day he was walking along the Charles River and a cold burst of wind left him choking for air. He was rushed to the hospital and injected with adrenaline. A few years later, he began to have trouble walking, and at a birthday party for a friend, he stumbled inexplicably. Another night, he fell down the steps of a theater, startling a small crowd of people. Give him air, someone yelled. He was in his 70s by this point, so they whispered, old age, and helped him to his feet. But Maury, who was always more in touch with his insides than the rest of us, knew something else was wrong. This was more than old age. He was weary all the time. He had trouble sleeping, and he dreamt he was dying. He began to see doctors, lots of them. They tested his blood. They tested his urine. They put a scope up his rear end and looked inside his intestines. Finally, when nothing could be found, one doctor ordered a muscle biopsy, taking a small piece out of Maury's calf. The lab report came back suggesting a neurological problem, and Maury was brought in for yet another series of tests. In one of those tests, he was sat in a special seat as they zapped him with electrical current, an electric chair of sorts, and studied his neurological responses. We need to check this further, the doctor said, looking over the results. Why, Maury asked, what is it? We're not sure. Your times are slow. His times were slow? What did that mean? Finally, on a hot, humid day in August 1994, Maury and his wife, Charlotte, went to the neurologist's office, and he asked them to sit before he broke the news. Maury had amyotropic lateral sclerosis, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, a brutal, unforgiving illness of the neurological system. There was no known cure. How did I get it, Maury asked. Nobody knew. Is it terminal? Yes. So I'm going to die? Yes, you are, the doctor said. I'm very sorry. He sat with Maury and Charlotte for nearly two hours, patiently answering their questions. When they left, the doctor gave them some information on ALS, little pamphlets, as if they were opening a bank account. Outside, the sun was shining and people were going about their business. A woman ran to put money in the parking meter. Another carried groceries. Charlotte had a million thoughts running through her mind. How much time do we have left? How will we manage? How will we pay the bills? My old professor, meanwhile, was stunned by the normalcy of the day around him. Shouldn't the world stop, he thought? Don't they know what's happened to me? But the world did not stop. It took no notice at all. And as Maury pulled weakly on the car door, he felt as if he were dropping into a hole. Now what? he thought. As my old professor searched for answers, the disease took him over day by day, week by week. He backed the car out of the garage one morning and could barely push the brakes. That was the end of his driving. He kept tripping, so he purchased a cane. That was the end of his walking free. He went for his regular swim at the YMCA, but found he could no longer undress himself. So he hired his first home care worker, a theology student named Tony, who helped him in and out of the pool and in and out of his bathing suit. In the locker room, the other swimmers pretended not to stare. They stared anyhow. And that was the end of Maury's privacy. 
In the fall of 1994, Maury came to the Hilly Brandeis campus to teach his final college course. He could have skipped this, of course. The university would have understood. Why suffer in front of so many people? Stay at home. Get your affairs in order. But the idea of quitting did not occur to Maury. Instead, he hobbled into the classroom, his home for more than 30 years. Because of the cane, he took a while to reach the chair. Finally, he sat down, dropped his glasses off his nose, and looked out at the young faces who stared back in silence. My friends, he said, I assume you're all here for the social psychology class. I've been teaching this course for 20 years, and this is the first time I can say there is a risk in taking it because I have a fatal illness. I may not live to finish the semester. If you feel this is a problem, I understand if you wish to drop the course. He smiled, and that was the end of his secret. ALS is like a lit candle. It melts your nerves and leaves your body a pile of wax. Often it begins with the legs and works its way up. You lose control of your thigh muscles so that you cannot support yourself standing. You lose control of your trunk muscles so that you cannot sit up straight. By the end, if you are still alive, you're breathing through a tube in a hole in your throat while your soul, perfectly awake, is imprisoned inside a limp husk, perhaps able to blink or click a tongue like something from a science fiction movie, the man frozen inside his own flesh. This takes no more than five years from the day you contract the disease. Maury's doctors guessed he had two years left. Maury knew it was less. But my old professor had made a profound decision when he began to construct the day he came out of the doctor's office with a sword hanging over his head. Do I wither up and disappear, he thought, or do I make the best of my time left? He would not wither. He would not be ashamed of dying. Instead, he would make death his final project, the center point of his days. Since everyone was going to die, he could be of great value, right? He could be research, a human textbook. Study me in my slow and patient demise. Watch what happens to me. Learn with me. Maury would walk that final bridge between life and death, and he would narrate the trip. The fall semester passed quickly. The pills increased. Therapy became a regular routine. Nurses came to his house to work with Maury's withering legs to keep the muscles active, bending them back and forth as if pumping water from a well. Massage specialists came in once a week to try to soothe the constant heavy stiffness he felt. He met with meditation teachers and closed his eyes and narrowed his thoughts until his world shrunk down to a single breath, in and out, in and out. One day, using his cane, he stepped onto the curb and fell over into the street. The cane was exchanged for a walker. As his body weakened, the back and forth to the bathroom became too exhausting, so Maury began to urinate into a large beaker. He had to support himself as he did this, meaning someone had to hold the beaker while Maury filled it. Now, most of us would be embarrassed by all this, especially at Maury's age, but Maury was not like most of us. When some of his close colleagues would visit, he would say to them, Listen, I have to pee. Would you mind helping? Are you okay with that? Often, to their own surprise, they were. In fact, Maury entertained a growing stream of visitors. He had discussion groups about dying, what it really meant, how societies had always been afraid of it without necessarily understanding it. He told his friends that if they really wanted to help him, they would treat him not with sympathy, but with visits, phone calls, a sharing of their problems, the way they'd always shared their problems before, because Maury had always been a wonderful listener. For all that was happening to him, his voice was strong and inviting, and his mind was vibrating with a million thoughts. He was intent on proving that the word dying was not synonymous 
with the word useless. The new year came and went. Although he never said it to anyone more, he knew this would be the last year of his life. He was using a wheelchair now, and he was fighting time to say all the things he wanted to say to all the people he loved. When a colleague at Brandeis died suddenly of a heart attack, Maury went to his funeral. He came home depressed. What a waste, he said. All those people saying all those wonderful things, and Irv never got to hear any of it. Maury had a better idea. He made some calls, he chose a date, and on a cold Sunday afternoon, he was joined in his home by a small group of friends and family for a living funeral. Each of them spoke and paid tribute to my old professor. Some cried, some laughed. One relative read a poem. My dear and loving cousin, she said, your ageless heart as you move through time, layer on layer, tender sequoia. Maury cried and laughed with them, and all the heartfelt things we never get to say to those we love, Maury said that day. His living funeral was a rousing success. Only Maury wasn't dead yet. In fact, the most unusual part of his life was about to unfold. The Student At this point, I should explain what had happened to me since that summer day when I last hugged my dear and wise professor and promised to keep in touch. I did not keep in touch. In fact, I lost contact with most of the people I knew in college, including my beer-drinking friends and the first woman I ever woke up with in the morning. The years after graduation hardened me into someone quite different from the strutting graduate who left campus that day headed for New York City, ready to offer the world his talent. The world, I discovered, was not all that interested. I wandered around my early 20s, paying rent and reading classifieds and wondering why the lights were not turning green for me. My dream was to be a famous musician. I played the piano. But after several years of dark, empty nightclubs, broken promises, bands that kept breaking up and producers who seemed excited about everyone but me, the dream soured. I was failing for the first time in my life. At the same time, I had my first serious encounter with death. My favorite uncle, my mother's brother, the man who had taught me music, taught me to drive, teased me about girls, throw me a football, that one adult whom I targeted as a child and said, that's who I want to be when I grow up. Well, he died of pancreatic cancer at the age of 44. He was a short, handsome man with a thick mustache, and I was with him for the last year of his life, living in an apartment just below his. I watched his strong body wither, then bloat, saw him suffer night after night, doubled over at the dinner table, pressing on his stomach, his eyes shut, his mouth contorted in pain. Oh, God, he would moan. Oh, Jesus. The rest of us, my aunt, his two young sons, me, stood there silently, cleaning the plates, averting our eyes. It was the most helpless I have ever felt in my life. One night in May, my uncle and I sat on the balcony of his apartment. It was breezy and warm. He looked out toward the horizon and said through gritted teeth, that he wouldn't be around to see his kids into the next school year. He asked if I would look after them. I told him, don't talk that way. He just stared at me sadly. He died a few weeks later. After the funeral, my life changed. I felt as if time were suddenly precious, water going down an open drain, and I could not move quickly enough. No more playing music at half-empty nightclubs, no more writing songs in my apartment, songs that no one would hear. I returned to school, I earned a master's degree in journalism, and took the first job offered as a sports writer. Instead of chasing my own fame, I wrote about famous athletes chasing theirs. I worked for newspapers and freelance for magazines. 
I worked at a pace that knew no hours, no limits. I would wake up in the morning, brush my teeth, and sit down at the typewriter in the same clothes I had slept in the night before. My uncle had worked for a corporation and hated it, same thing, every day, and I was determined never to end up like him. I bounced around from New York to Florida and eventually took a job in Detroit as a columnist for the Detroit Free Press. The sports appetite in that city was insatiable. They had professional teams in football, basketball, baseball, and hockey, and it matched my ambition. In a few years, I was not only penning columns, I was writing sports books, doing radio shows, appearing regularly on TV, spouting my opinions on rich football players and hypocritical college sports programs. I was part of the media thunderstorm that now soaks our country. I was in demand. I stopped renting. I started buying. I bought a house on a hill. I bought cars. I invested in stocks and built a portfolio. I was cranked to a fifth gear, and everything I did, I did on a deadline. I exercised like a demon. I drove my car at breakneck speed. I made more money than I had ever figured to see. I met a dark-haired woman named Janine, who somehow loved me despite my schedule and constant absences. We married after a seven-year courtship. I was back to work a week after the wedding. I told her and myself that we would one day start a family, something she wanted very much, but that day never came. Instead, I buried myself in accomplishments, because with accomplishments, I believed I could control things. I could squeeze in every last piece of happiness before I got sick and died, like my uncle before me, which I figured was my natural fate. As for Maury, well, I thought about him now and then, the things he had taught me about being human and relating to others, but it was always in the distance, as if from another life. Over the years, I threw away any mail that came from Brandeis University, figuring they were only asking for money. So I did not know of Maury's illness. The people who might have told me were long forgotten, their phone numbers buried in some packed-away box in the attic. It might have stayed that way, too, had I not been flicking through the TV channels late one night when something caught my ear. The Classroom The sun beamed in through the dining room window, lighting up the hardwood floor. We'd been talking there for nearly two hours. The phone rang yet again, and Maury asked his helper, Connie, to get it. She'd been jotting the caller's names in Maury's small black appointment book. Friends, meditation teachers, a discussion group, someone who wanted to photograph him for a magazine. It was clear I was not the only one interested in visiting my old professor. The nightline appearance had made him something of a celebrity. But I was impressed with, maybe a bit envious of, all the friends that Maury seemed to have. I thought about the buddies that had circled my orbit back in college. Where had they gone? You know, Mitch, Maury said, now that I'm dying, I've become much more interesting to people. You were always interesting, I said. Oh, Maury smiled. You're kind. No, I'm not, I thought. Here's the thing, Maury said. People see me as a bridge. I'm not as alive as I used to be, but I'm not yet dead. I'm sort of in between. He coughed, then regained his smile. I'm on the last great journey here, and people want me to tell them what to pack. The phone rang yet again. Maury, can you talk? Connie asked. I'm visiting my old pal now, he announced. Let them call back. I cannot tell you why he received me so warmly. I was hardly the promising student who had left him 16 years earlier. Had it not been for Nightline, Maury might have died without ever seeing me again. I had no good excuse for this, except the one that everyone these days seems to have. I had become too wrapped up in the siren song of my own life. I was busy. What happened to me, I asked myself. Maury's high, smoky voice took me back to my university years. 
Back then, I thought rich people were evil. A shirt and tie were prison clothes. And life without freedom to get up and go down the streets of Paris or the mountains of Tibet, well, that was not a good life at all. What happened to me? The 80s happened. The 90s happened. Death and sickness and getting fat and going bald happened. I traded lots of dreams for a bigger paycheck. I never even realized I was doing it. Yet here was Maury, talking with the wonder of our college years, as if I'd simply been on a long vacation. Have you found someone to share your heart with, he asked. Are you giving to your community? Are you at peace with yourself? Are you trying to be as human as you can be? I squirmed, wanting to show I had been grappling deeply with these questions. What happened to me? I once promised myself I would never work for money, that I would join the Peace Corps, that I would live in beautiful, inspirational places. Instead, I had been in Detroit for ten years now, at the same workplace, using the same bank, visiting the same barber. I was 37, more efficient than in college. I was tied to computers and modems and cell phones. I wrote articles about rich athletes who, for the most part, could not care less about people like me. I was no longer young for my peer group, nor did I walk around in gray sweatshirts with unlit cigarettes in my mouth. I did not have long discussions over egg salad sandwiches about the meaning of life. My days were full, yet I remained much of the time unsatisfied. What happened to me? Coach, I said suddenly, remembering the nickname. Maury beamed. That's me. I'm still your coach. He laughed and resumed his eating, a meal he had started 40 minutes earlier. I watched him now, his hands working gingerly, as if he were learning to use them for the very first time. He could not press down hard with a knife. His fingers shook. Each bite was a struggle. He chewed the food finely before swallowing, and sometimes it slid out the sides of his lips so that he had to put down what he was holding to dab his face with a napkin. The skin from his wrist to his knuckles was dotted with age spots, and it was loose, like skin hanging from a chicken soup bone. For a while, we just ate like that, a sick old man, a healthy younger man, both absorbing the quiet of the room. I would say it was an embarrassed silence, but I seemed to be the only one embarrassed. Dying, Maury suddenly said. There's only one thing to be sad over, Mitch. Living unhappily is something else. So many of the people who come to visit me are unhappy. Why, I asked. Well, for one thing, the culture we have does not make people feel good about themselves. We're teaching the wrong things. And you have to be strong enough to say if the culture doesn't work, don't use it. Create your own culture. Most people can't do it. They're more unhappy than me, even in my current condition. I may be dying, but I'm surrounded by loving, caring souls. How many other people can say that? I was astonished at Maury's complete lack of self-pity. He could no longer dance, swim, bathe, or walk. He could no longer answer his own door, dry himself after a shower, or even roll over in bed. How could he be so accepting? I watched him struggle with his fork, picking at a piece of tomato, missing it the first two times. A pathetic scene. And yet I could not deny that sitting in his presence was almost magically serene, the same calm breeze that had soothed me back in college. I shot a glance at my watch, force of habit, I guess, it was getting late, and I thought about changing my plane reservation home. Then Maury did something that haunts me to this day. You know how I'm going to die, he said. I raised my eyebrows. I'm going to suffocate, he said. Yes, my lungs, because of my asthma. They can't handle the disease. It's moving up my body now, this ALS. It's already got my legs. And pretty soon it'll get my arms and hands. And when it hits my lungs, 
He shrugged his shoulders. I'm sunk. I had no idea what to say to that, so I said, well, you know, I mean, you never know. Maury closed his eyes. I know, Mitch, he said. You mustn't be afraid of my dying. I've had a good life, and we all know it's going to happen. I maybe have four or five months. Come on, I said nervously. Nobody can sit. I can, he said softly. There's even a little test. A doctor showed me. A test, I said. Inhale a few times, he said. I did as he told me. Now, once more, but this time, when you exhale, count as many numbers as you can before you take another breath. I quickly exhaled the numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I reached 70 before my breath was gone. Good, Maury said. You have healthy lungs. Now, watch what I do. He inhaled, then began his number count in a soft, wobbly voice. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. He stopped gasping for air. When the doctor first asked me to do this, I could reach twenty-three, he said. Now it's eighteen. He closed his eyes, shook his head. My tank, he said. It's almost empty. I tapped my thighs nervously. That was enough for one afternoon. Come back and see your old professor, Maury said when I hugged him goodbye. I promised I would, and I tried not to think about the last time I promised this. It's the fall of 1976. In the campus bookstore, I shop for items on Maury's reading list. I purchase books that I never knew existed, titles such as Youth, Identity, and Crisis, I and Thou, The Divided Self. Before college, I did not know the study of human relations could be considered scholarly. Until I met Maury, I did not believe it. But his passion for books is real and contagious. We begin to talk seriously sometimes, after class, when the room is emptied. He asks me questions about my life, then quotes lines from Eric Fromm, Martin Buber, Eric Erickson. Often he defers to their words, footnoting his own advice, even though he obviously thought the same things himself. It's at these times that I realize he is indeed a professor, not an uncle. One afternoon I'm complaining about the confusion of my age, what's expected of me versus what I want for myself. Have I told you about the tension of opposites, Maury says? The tension of opposites? Life is a series of pulls back and forth, he says. You want to do one thing, but you're bound to do something else. Something hurts you, yet you know it shouldn't. You take certain things for granted, even when you know you should never take anything for granted. A tension of opposites, like a pull on a rubber band. And most of us live somewhere in the middle. Sounds like a wrestling match, I say. <laughs> a wrestling match, he laughs. Yes, you could describe life that way. Well, which side wins, I ask. Which side wins, he says. He smiles at me, the crinkled eyes, the crooked teeth. Love wins. Love always wins. Taking Attendance I flew to London a few weeks later. I was covering Wimbledon, the world's premier tennis competition, and one of the few events I go to where the crowd never boos and no one's drunk in the parking lot. England was warm and cloudy, and each morning I walked the tree-lined streets near the tennis courts, passing teenagers queued up for leftover tickets and vendors selling strawberries and cream. Outside the gate was a newsstand that sold a half-dozen colorful British tabloids featuring photos of topless women paparazzi pictures of the royal family, horoscopes, sports, lottery contests, and a wee bit of actual news. Their top headline of the day was written on a small chalkboard that leaned against the latest stack of papers and usually read something like, Diana in row with Charles, 
or Gaza to team, give me millions. People scooped up these tabloids, devoured their gossip, and on previous trips to England, I'd always done the same. But now, for some reason, I found myself thinking about Maury whenever I read anything silly or mindless. I kept picturing him there in the house with the Japanese maple and the hardwood floors, counting his breath, squeezing out every moment with his loved ones, while I spent so many hours on things that meant absolutely nothing to me personally. Movie stars, supermodels, the latest noise out of Princess Di or Madonna or John F. Kennedy Jr. In a strange way, I envied the quality of Maury's time, even as I lamented its diminishing supply. Why did we bother with all the distractions we did? Back home, the O.J. Simpson trial was in full swing, and there were people who surrendered their entire lunch hours watching it, then taped the rest so they could watch more at night. They didn't know O.J. Simpson. They didn't know anyone involved in the case. Yet they gave up days and weeks of their lives addicted to someone else's drama. I remember what Maury said to me during our visit. The culture we have does not make people feel good about themselves. And you have to be strong enough to say if the culture doesn't work, don't use it. Maury, true to these words, had developed his own culture long before he got sick. Discussion groups, walks with friends, dancing to his music at the Harvard Square Church. He started a project called Greenhouse where poor people could receive mental health services. He read books to find new ideas for his classes. He visited with colleagues. He kept up with old students. He wrote letters to distant friends. He took more time eating and looking at nature, and he wasted no time in front of TV sitcoms or movies of the week. He had created a cocoon of human activities, conversation, interaction, affection, and it filled his life like an overflowing soup bowl. I had also developed my own culture, work. I did four or five media jobs in England, juggling them like a clown. I spent eight hours a day on a computer, feeding my stories back to the States. Then I did TV pieces, traveling with a crew throughout parts of London. I also phoned in radio reports every morning and afternoon, and this was not an abnormal load. Over the years, I'd taken labor as my companion and had moved everything else to the side. In Wimbledon, I ate meals at my little wooden work cubicle and thought nothing of it. On one particularly crazy day, a crush of reporters had tried to chase down Andre Agassi and his famous girlfriend, Brooke Shields, and I had gotten knocked over by a British photographer who barely muttered sorry before sweeping past his huge metal lens strapped around his neck. I thought of something else Maury had told me. So many people, Mitch, he said, walk around with a meaningless life. They seem half asleep, even when they're busy doing things they think are important. This is because they're chasing the wrong things. The way you get meaning into your life is to devote yourself to loving others, devote yourself to your community around you, and devote yourself to creating something that gives you purpose and meaning. I knew Maury was right, not that I did anything about it. At the end of the tournament, and the countless cups of coffee I drank to get through it, I closed my computer, cleaned out my cubicle, and went back to the apartment to pack. It was late, the TV was nothing but fuzz. I flew to Detroit, arrived late in the afternoon, dragged myself home, and went to sleep. I awoke to a jolting piece of news. The unions at my newspaper had gone on strike. The place was shut down. There were picketers at the front entrance and marchers chanting up and down the street. As a member of the union, I had no choice. I was suddenly, and for the first time in my life, out of a job, out of a paycheck, and pitted against my employers. Union leaders called my home and warned me against any contact with my former editors, many of whom were my friends. They told me to hang up if these people tried to call and plead their case. We're going to fight until we win, the union leaders swore, sounding like soldiers. 
I felt confused and depressed. Although the TV and radio work were nice supplements, the newspaper had always been my lifeline, my oxygen. When I saw my stories in print each morning, I knew that, in at least one way, I was alive. Now it was gone, and as the strike continued, the first day, the second day, the third day, there were worried phone calls and rumors that this could go on for months. Everything I had known was upside down. There were sporting events each night that I would have gone to cover. Instead, I stayed home and watched them on TV. I had grown used to thinking that readers somehow needed my column, and I was stunned at how easily things went on without me. After a week of this, I picked up the phone and dialed Maury's number. Connie brought him to the telephone. You're coming to visit me, he said. That's a question than a statement. Well, could I, I said. How about Tuesday, he said. Tuesday would be good, I said. Tuesday would be fine. In my sophomore year, I take two more of Maury's courses. We go beyond the classroom, meeting now and then just to talk. I've never done this before with an adult who was not a relative, yet I feel comfortable doing it with Maury, and he seems comfortable making the time. Where shall we visit today, he asks cheerily when I enter his office. In the spring, we sit under a tree outside the sociology building, and in the winter, we sit by his desk, me in my gray sweatshirts and Adidas sneakers, Maury in Rockport shoes and corduroy pants. Each time we talk, he listens to me ramble, then he tries to pass on some sort of life lesson. He warns me that money is not the most important thing, contrary to the popular view on campus. He tells me I need to be fully human. He speaks of the alienation of youth, the need for connectedness with the society around me. Some of these things I understand, some I do not. It makes no difference. The discussions give me an excuse to talk to him. Fatherly conversations I cannot have with my own father, who would like me to be a lawyer. Maury hates lawyers. What do you want to do when you get out of college, he asks. I want to be a musician, I say, a piano player. Wonderful, he says. But that's a hard life. Yeah, I say. A lot of sharks, he says. That's what I hear. Still, he says, if you really want it, then you'll make your dream happen. I want to hug Maury to thank him for saying that, but I'm not that open. I only nod instead. I bet you play piano with a lot of pep, he says. I laugh. Pep? He laughs back. Pep, what's the matter? They don't say that anymore? The first Tuesday, we talk about the world. Connie opened the door and let me in. Maury was in his wheelchair by the kitchen table, wearing a loose cotton shirt and even looser black sweatpants. They were loose because his legs had atrophied beyond normal clothing size. You could get two hands around his thighs and have your fingers touch. Had he been able to stand, Maury would have been no more than five feet tall, and he'd probably have fit into a sixth grader's jeans. I got you something, I announced, holding up a brown paper bag. I'd stopped on my way from the airport at a nearby supermarket, and purchased some turkey, potato salad, macaroni salad, and bagels. I knew there was plenty of food at the house, but I wanted to contribute something. I was so powerless to help Maury otherwise, and I remembered his fondness for eating. Ah, so much food, he sang. Well, now you have to eat it with me. We sat at the kitchen table, surrounded by wicker chairs. This time, without the need to make up 16 years of information, we slid quickly into the familiar waters of our old college dialogue. Maury asking questions, listening to my replies, stopping like a chef to sprinkle in something I'd forgotten or hadn't realized. He asked about the newspaper strike, and true to form, he couldn't understand why both sides didn't simply communicate with each other and solve their problems. I told him not everyone was as smart as he was. 
Occasionally, he had to stop to use the bathroom, a process that took some time. Connie would wheel him to the toilet, then lift him from the chair and support him as he urinated into the beaker. Each time he came back, he looked tired. Do you remember when I told Ted Koppel that pretty soon someone was going to have to wipe my ass, he said? I laughed. You don't forget a moment like that. Well, he said, I think that day is coming, and that one bothers me. Why? Because it's the ultimate sign of dependency, Mitch. Someone wiping your bottom. But I'm working on it. I'm trying to enjoy the process. Enjoy it, I said. Yes. After all, I get to be a baby one more time. <laughs> That's a unique way of looking at it, I said. Well, he said, I have to look at life uniquely now. Let's face it, I can't go shopping. I can't take care of the bank accounts. I can't take out the garbage. But I can sit here with my dwindling days and look at what I think is important in life. I have both the time and the reason to do that. So, I said, in a reflexively cynical response, I guess the key to finding the meaning of life is to stop taking out the garbage? He laughed, and I was relieved that he did. As Connie took the plates away, I noticed a stack of newspapers that had obviously been read before I got there. You bother keeping up with the news, I asked? Yes, Maury said. You think that's strange? You think because I'm dying, I shouldn't care what happens in this world? Maybe, I said. He sighed. Maybe you're right. Maybe I shouldn't care. After all, I won't be around to see how it turns out. But it's hard to explain, Mitch. Now that I'm suffering, I feel closer to people who suffer than I ever did before. The other night on TV, I saw people in Bosnia running across the street, getting fired upon, killed, innocent victims. And I just started to cry. I feel their anguish as if it were my own. I don't know any of these people, but how can I put this? I'm almost drawn to them. His eyes got moist and I tried to change the subject, but he dabbed his face and waved me off. I cry all the time now, he said. Never mind. Amazing, I thought. I worked in the news business. I covered stories where people died. I interviewed grieving family members. I even attended the funerals. I never cried. Maury, for the suffering of people half a world away, was weeping. Is this what comes at the end, I wondered? Maybe death is the great equalizer, the one big thing that can finally make strangers shed a tear for one another. Maury honked loudly into the tissue. This is okay with you, isn't it? Men crying? Sure, I said too quickly. He grinned. Ah, Mitch, I'm going to loosen you up. One day, I'm going to show you it's okay to cry. Yeah, yeah, I said. Yeah, yeah, he said. We laughed because we used to say the same thing nearly 20 years earlier, mostly on Tuesdays. In fact, Tuesday had always been our day together. Most of my courses with Maury were on Tuesdays. He'd had office hours on Tuesdays. And when I wrote my senior thesis, which was pretty much Maury's suggestion right from the start, it was on Tuesdays that we sat together by his desk or in the cafeteria or on the steps of Perlman Hall going over the work. So it seemed only fitting that we were back together on a Tuesday, here in the house with the Japanese maple out front. As I readied to go, I mentioned this to Maury. We're Tuesday people, he said. Tuesday people, I repeated. Maury smiled. Mitch, you asked about caring for people I don't even know, but can I tell you the thing I'm learning most with this disease? What's that, I said. The most important thing in life is to learn how to give out love and to let it come in. His voice dropped to a whisper. Let it come in. We think we don't deserve love, he said. We think if we let it in, we'll become too soft. But a wise man named Levine said it right. 
He said, love is the only rational act. Maury repeated it carefully, pausing for effect. Love is the only rational act. I nodded like a good student, and he exhaled weakly. I leaned over to give him a hug, and then, although it's really not like me, I kissed him on the cheek. I felt his weakened hands on my arms, the thin stubble of his whiskers brushing my face. So, he whispered, you'll come back next Tuesday? It's my sophomore year in college. He enters the classroom, sits down, doesn't say anything. He looks at us, and we look at him. At first, there are a few giggles, but Maury only shrugs, and eventually, a deep silence falls, and we begin to notice the smallest sounds, the radiator humming in the corner of the room, the nasal breathing of one of the fat students. Some of us are agitated. When's he going to say something? We squirm. We check our watches. A few students look out the window, trying to be above it all. This goes on a good 15 minutes before Maury finally breaks in with a whisper. What's happening here? He asks. And slowly a discussion begins, as Maury had wanted all along, about the effects of silence on human relations. Why are we so embarrassed by silence? What comfort do we take in all the noise? I'm not bothered by silence. For all the noise I make with my friends, I'm still not comfortable talking about my feelings in front of others, especially not classmates in college. I could sit in the quiet for hours if that's what the class demanded. On my way out, Maury stops me. You didn't say much today, he remarks. I don't know, I say. I just didn't have anything to add. I think you have a lot to add, Mitch, he says. In fact, you remind me of someone I knew who also liked to keep things to himself when he was younger. Who's that, I ask? Me, Maury says. The second Tuesday, we talk about feeling sorry for yourself. I came back the next Tuesday, and for many Tuesdays that followed. I looked forward to these visits, more than one would think, considering I was flying 700 miles to sit alongside a dying man. But I seemed to slip into a time warp when I visited Maury, and I liked myself better when I was there. I no longer rented a cellular phone for the rides from the airport. Let them wait, I told myself, mimicking Maury. The newspaper situation in Detroit had not improved. In fact, it had grown increasingly insane, with nasty confrontations between picketers and replacement workers, people arrested, beaten, lying in the street in front of delivery trucks. In light of all this, my visits with Maury felt like a cleansing rinse of human kindness. We talked about life. We talked about love. We talked about one of Maury's favorite subjects, compassion, and why our society had such a shortage of it. Before my third visit, I stopped at a market called Bread and Circus. I'd seen their bags in Maury's house, and I figured he must like the food there, so I loaded up with plastic containers from their fresh food takeaway, things like vermicelli with vegetables and carrot soup and baklava. When I entered Maury's study, I lifted the bags as if I'd just robbed a bank. Food man, I bellowed. Maury rolled his eyes and smiled. Meanwhile, I looked for signs of the disease's progression. His fingers worked well enough to write with a pencil or hold up his glasses, but he could not lift his arms much higher than his chest. He was spending less and less time in the kitchen or living room and more in the study, where he had a large reclining chair set up with pillows, blankets, and specially cut pieces of foam rubber that held his feet and gave support to his withered legs. He kept a bell near his side, and when his head needed adjusting, or he had to go on the commode, as he referred to it, he would shake the bell and his small army of home care workers would come in. It wasn't always easy for him to lift the bell, and he got frustrated when he couldn't make it work. I asked Maury if he felt sorry for himself. 
Sometimes, in the morning, he said, that's when I mourn. I feel around my body. I move my fingers and my hands, whatever I can still move. And I mourn what I've lost. I mourn the slow, insidious way in which I'm dying. But then I stop mourning. Just like that, I said. I give myself a good cry if I need it. But then I concentrate on all the good things still in my life. On the people who are coming to see me. On the stories I'm going to hear. On you, if it's Tuesday. Because we're Tuesday people. I grinned, Tuesday people. Mitch Morey said, I don't allow myself any more self-pity than that. A little each morning, a few tears, and that's all. I thought about all the people I knew who spent many of their waking hours feeling sorry for themselves. How useful it would be to put a daily limit on self-pity. Just a few tearful minutes, then on with the day. And if Maury could do it with such a horrible disease, well... Maury said, it's only horrible if you see it that way, Mitch. It's horrible to watch my body slowly wilt away to nothing. But it's also wonderful because of all the time I get to say goodbye. He smiled. Not everyone is so lucky. I studied him in his chair, unable to stand, to wash, to pull on his pants. Lucky, I thought. Did he really say lucky? During a break when Maury had to use the bathroom, I leafed through the Boston newspaper that sat near his chair. There was a story about a small timber town where two teenage girls tortured and killed the 73-year-old man who'd befriended them, then threw a party in his trailer home and showed off the corpse. There was another story about the upcoming trial of a straight man who killed a gay man after the latter had gone on a TV talk show and said he had a crush on him. I put the paper away. Maury was rolled back in, smiling as always, and Connie went to lift him from the wheelchair to the recliner. You want me to do that, I asked? There was a momentary silence, and I'm not even sure why I offered. But Maury looked at Connie and said, Can you show him how to do it? Sure, Connie said. Following her instructions, I leaned over, locked my forearms under Maury's armpits, and hooked him towards me, as if lifting a large log from underneath. Then I straightened up, hoisting him as I rose. Now normally when you lift someone, you expect their arms to tighten around your grip. But Maury could not do this. He was mostly dead weight and I felt his head bounce softly on my shoulder, and his body sag against me like a big, damp loaf. Ah, he softly groaned. I gotcha, I gotcha, I said. Holding him like that moved me in a way I cannot describe, except to say I felt the seeds of death inside his shriveling frame, and as I laid him in his chair, adjusting his head on the pillows, I had the coldest realization that our time was running out, and I had to do something. By the start of my senior year, I have taken so many sociology classes, I'm only a few credits shy of a degree. Maury suggests I try an honors thesis. Me, I ask, what would I write about? What interests you, he says. We bat it back and forth until we finally settle on, of all things, sports. I begin a year-long project on how football in America has become ritualistic, almost a religion, an opiate for the masses. I have no idea that this is training for my future career. I only know it gives me another once-a-week session with Maury. And with this help, by spring I have a 112-page thesis, researched, footnoted, documented, and neatly bound in black leather. I show it to Maury with the pride of a little leaguer rounding the bases on his first home run. Congratulations, Maury says. I grin as he leaps through it, and I glance around his office, 
the shelves of books, the hardwood floor, the throw rug, the couch. I think to myself that I have sat just about everywhere there is to sit in this room. I don't know, Mitch, Maury muses, adjusting his glasses as he reads. With work like this, we may have to get you back here for grad school. <laughs> yeah, right, I say. I snicker, but the idea is momentarily appealing. Part of me is scared of leaving school. Part of me wants to go desperately. Tension of opposites. I watch Maury as he reads my thesis and wonder what the big world will be like out there. The Audiovisual, Part 2 The Nightline show had done a follow-up story on Maury, partly because the reception for the first show had been so strong. This time, when the cameramen and producers came through the door, they already felt like family, and Ted Koppel himself was noticeably warmer. There was no feeling-out process, no interview before the interview. As warm-up, Koppel and Maury exchanged stories about their childhood backgrounds. Koppel spoke of growing up in England. Maury spoke of growing up in the Bronx. Maury wore a long-sleeved blue shirt. He was almost always chilly, even when it was 90 degrees outside. But Koppel removed his jacket and did the interview in shirt and tie, as if Maury were breaking him down, one layer at a time. You look fine, Koppel said when the tape began to roll. That's what everybody tells me, Maury said. You sound fine, Koppel said. That's what everybody tells me, said Maury. So how do you know things are going downhill, Koppel asked. Maury sighed. Nobody can know it but me, Ted, but I know it. And as he spoke, it became obvious. He was not waving his hands to make a point as freely as he had in their first conversation. He had trouble pronouncing certain words. The L sound seemed to get caught in his throat. In a few more months, he might no longer speak at all. Here's how my emotions go, Maury told Koppel. When I have people and friends here, I'm very up. The loving relationships maintain me. But there are days when I am depressed. Let me not deceive you. I see certain things going on and I feel a sense of dread. What am I going to do without my hands? What happens when I can't speak? Swallowing, I don't care so much about, so they feed me through a tube, so what? But my voice? My hands? They're such an essential part of me. I talk with my voice. I gesture with my hands. This is how I give to people. Coppola asked, how will you give when you can no longer speak? Maury shrugged. Maybe I'll have everyone ask me yes or no questions. It was such a simple answer that Coppola had to smile. He asked Maury about silence. He mentioned a dear friend Maury had, Maury Stein, who had first sent Maury's aphorisms to the Boston Globe. They'd been together at Brandeis since the early 60s, and now Stein was going deaf. Koppel imagined the two men together one day, one unable to speak, the other unable to hear. What would that be like? We would hold hands, Maury said, and there'll be a lot of love passing between us. Ted, we've had 35 years of friendship. You don't need speech or hearing to feel that. Before the show ended, Maury read Koppel one of the letters he'd received. Since the first Nightline program, there had been a great deal of mail. One particular letter came from a school teacher in Pennsylvania who taught a special class of nine children. Every child in the class had suffered the death of a parent. Here's what I sent her back, Maury told Koppel, perching his glasses gingerly on his nose and ears. Dear Barbara, I was very moved by your letter. I feel the work you have done with the children who have lost a parent is very important. I also lost a parent at an early age. Suddenly, with the camera still humming, Maury adjusted the glasses. He stopped, bit his lip, and began to choke up. Tears fell down his nose. He went on, I lost my mother when I was a child, and it was quite a blow to me. I wish I'd had a group like yours, where I would have been able to talk about my sorrows. I would have joined your group because 
his voice cracked. Because I was so lonely. Maury Koppel said, that was 70 years ago your mother died. The pain still goes on? You bet, Maury whispered. The Professor He was eight years old. A telegram came from the hospital, and since his father, a Russian immigrant, could not read English, Maury had to break the news, reading his mother's death notice like a student in front of the class. We regret to inform you, he began. On the morning of the funeral, Maury's relatives came down the steps of his tenement building on the poor Lower East Side of Manhattan. The men wore dark suits, the women wore veils. The kids in the neighborhood were going off to school, and as they passed, Maury looked down, ashamed that his classmates would see him this way. One of his aunts, a heavy-set woman, grabbed Maury and began to wail, "'What will become of you? What will you do without your mother?' Maury burst into tears. His classmates ran away. At the cemetery, Maury watched as they shoveled dirt into his mother's grave. He tried to recall the tender moments they had shared while she was alive. She had operated a candy store until she got sick, after which she mostly slept or sat by the window, looking frail and weak. Sometimes she would yell out for her son to get her some medicine, and young Maury, playing stickball in the street, would pretend he didn't hear her. In his mind, he believed he could make the illness go away by ignoring it. How else can a child confront death? Maury's father, whom everyone called Charlie, had come to America to escape the Russian army. He worked in the fur business, but was constantly out of a job. Uneducated and barely able to speak English, he was terribly poor, and the family was on public assistance much of the time. Their apartment was a dark, cramped, depressing place behind the candy store. They had no luxuries, no car. Sometimes to make money, Maury and his younger brother David would wash porch steps for a nickel. After their mother's death, the two boys were sent off to a small hotel in the Connecticut woods, where several families shared a large cabin and a communal kitchen. Fresh air might be good for the children, the relatives thought. Maury and David had never seen so much greenery, and they played in the fields. One night after dinner, they went for a walk and it began to rain, and rather than coming in, they splashed around for hours. The next morning, when they awoke, Maury hopped out of bed. Come on, he said to his brother, get up. I can't. What do you mean you can't? David's face was panicked. I, I can't move. He had polio. Of course, the rain did not cause this, but a child Maury's age could not understand that. For a long time, as his brother was taken back and forth to a special medical home, forced to wear braces on his legs, which left him limping, Maury felt responsible. So in the mornings, he went to synagogue by himself, because his father was not a religious man, and he stood amongst the swaying men in their long black coats, and he asked God to take care of his dead mother and his sick brother. And in the afternoons, Maury stood at the bottom of the subway steps and hawked magazines, turning whatever money he made over to his family to buy food. In the evenings, he watched his father eat in silence, hoping for, but never getting, a show of affection, communication, warmth. At nine years old, young Maury felt as if the weight of a mountain were on his shoulders. But a saving embrace came into Maury's life the following year. His new stepmother, Ava. She was a short Romanian immigrant with plain features, curly brown hair, and the energy of two women. She had a glow that warmed the otherwise murky atmosphere his father created. She talked when her new husband was silent. She sang songs to the children at night. Maury took comfort in her soothing voice, her school lessons, her strong character. When his brother returned from the medical home, still wearing those leg braces from the polio, the two of them shared a rollaway bed in the kitchen of their apartment, and Ava would kiss them goodnight. Maury waited on those kisses like a puppy waits on milk, and he felt deep down that he had a mother again. 
There was no escaping their poverty, however. They lived now in the Bronx in a one-bedroom apartment in a red-brick building on Tremont Avenue, next to an Italian beer garden where the old men played bocce on summer evenings. Because of the Depression, Maury's father found even less work in the fur business. Sometimes when the family sat at the dinner table, all Ava could put out was bread. What else is there, David would ask. Nothing else, his mother would answer. When she tucked Maury and David into bed, she would sing to them in Yiddish. Even the songs were sad and poor. There was one about a girl trying to sell her cigarettes. The words went, Please buy my cigarettes. They are dry, not wet by rain. Take pity on me. Take pity on me. Still, despite their circumstances, Maury was taught to love and to care, and to learn. Ava would accept nothing less than excellence in school, because she saw education as the only antidote to their poverty. She herself went to night school to improve her English. Maury's love for education was hatched in her arms. He studied at night by the lamp of the kitchen table, and in the mornings he would go to the synagogue to say Yisker, the memorial prayer for the dead, this for his mother. He did this to keep her memory alive. Incredibly, Maury had been told by his father never to talk about her. Charlie wanted young David to think Ava was his natural mother. It was a terrible burden to Maury. For years, the only evidence he had of his mother was the telegram announcing her death. He'd hidden it the day it arrived, and he would keep it the rest of his life. When Maury was a teenager, his father took him to a fur factory where he worked. This was during the Depression, and the idea was to get Maury a job. He entered the factory and immediately felt as if the walls had closed in around him. The room was dark and hot, the windows covered with filth, and the machines were packed tightly together, churning like train wheels. The fur hairs were flying, creating a thickened air, and the workers, sewing their pelts together, were bent over their needles as the boss marched up and down the rows, screaming for them to go faster, faster. Maury could hardly breathe. He stood there next to his father, frozen with fear, hoping the boss wouldn't scream at him, too. During lunch break, his father took Maury to the boss and pushed him in front of him, asking if there was any work for his son. But there was barely enough work for the adult laborers, and no one was giving it up. For Maury, this was a blessing. He hated the place. He made another vow that he kept to the end of his life. He would never do any work that exploited someone else, and he would never allow himself to make money off the sweat of others. What will you do, Ava would ask him. I don't know, he would say. He ruled out law because he didn't like lawyers, and he ruled out medicine because he couldn't take the sight of blood. What will you do? It was only through default that the best professor I ever had became a teacher. A teacher affects eternity. He can never tell where his influence stops. Henry Adams The fourth Tuesday, we talk about death. Let's begin with this idea, Maury said. Everyone knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. He was in a business-like mood this Tuesday. The subject was death, the first item on my list. Before I arrived, Maury had scribbled a few notes on small white pieces of paper so that he wouldn't forget. His shaky handwriting was now indecipherable to everyone but him. It was almost Labor Day, and through the office window I could see the spinach-colored hedges of the backyard and hear the yells of children playing down the street, their last week of freedom before school began. Back in Detroit, the newspaper strikers were gearing up for a huge holiday demonstration to show the solidarity of unions against management. On the plane ride in, I had read about a woman who had shot her husband and two daughters as they lay sleeping, claiming she was protecting them from, quote, the bad people. In California, the lawyers in the O.J. Simpson trial were becoming huge celebrities. Here in Maury's office, life went on one precious day at a time. Now we sat together a few feet from the newest addition to the house, an oxygen machine. It was small and portable, about knee-high. 
On some nights, when he couldn't get enough air to swallow, Maury attached the long plastic tubing to his nose, clamping on his nostrils like a leech. I hated the idea of Maury connected to a machine of any kind, and I tried not to look at it as Maury spoke. Everyone knows they're going to die, he said again, but nobody believes it. If we did, we would do things differently. So, we kid ourselves about death, I said. Yes, he said, but there's a better approach, to know you're going to die and to be prepared for it at any time. That's better. That way you can actually be more involved in your life while you're living. How can you ever be prepared to die, I asked. Maury said, do what the Buddhists do. Every day have a little bird on your shoulder that asks, is today the day? Am I ready? Am I doing all I need to do? Am I being the person I want to be? Maury turned his head to his shoulder as if the bird were there now. Is today the day I die, he said. Maury borrowed freely from all religions. He was born Jewish but became agnostic when he was a teenager, partly because of all that had happened to him as a child. He enjoyed some of the philosophies of Buddhism and Christianity, and he still felt at home culturally in Judaism. He was a religious mutt, which made him even more open to the students he taught over the years, and the things he was saying in his final months on earth seemed to transcend all religious differences. Death has a way of doing that. The truth is, Mitch, he said, once you learn how to die you learn how to live. I nodded. I'm going to say it again, he said. Once you learn how to die, you learn how to live. He smiled and I realized what he was doing. He was making sure I absorbed this point without embarrassing me by asking. It was part of what made him a good teacher. Did you think much about death before you got sick, I asked? No. Maury smiled. I was like everyone else. I once told a friend of mine in a moment of exuberance, I'm going to be the healthiest old man you ever met. How old were you, I asked. In my sixties. So you were optimistic. Why not, he said. Like I told you, no one really believes they're going to die. But everyone knows someone who has died, I said. Why is it so hard to think about dying? Because, Maury continued, most of us walk around as if we're sleepwalking. We really don't experience the world fully because we're half asleep doing things we automatically think we have to do. And facing death changes all that, I asked. Oh, yes, Maury said. You strip away all that stuff and you focus on the essentials. When you realize you're going to die, you see everything much differently. He sighed. Learn how to die and you learn how to live. I noticed that he quivered now when he moved his hands. His glasses hung around his neck. And when he lifted them to his eyes, they slid around his temples as if he were trying to put them on someone else in the dark. I reached over to help guide them onto his ears. Thank you. Maury whispered. He smiled when my hand brushed up against his head. The slightest human contact was immediate joy. Mitch, can I tell you something? Of course, I said. You might not like it. Why not? Well, the truth is, if you really listen to that bird on your shoulder, if you accept that you can die at any time, then you might not be as ambitious as you are. I forced a small grin. The things you spend so much time on, Maury said, all this work you do, it might not seem so important. You might have to make room for some more spiritual things. Spiritual things, I said. You hate that word, don't you, Maury said, spiritual. You think it's touchy-feely stuff. Well, I said. He tried to wink, a bad try, and I broke down and laughed. Mitch, he continued laughing along. Even I don't know what spiritual development really means, but I do know we're deficient in some way. We're too involved in materialistic things, and they don't satisfy us. The loving relationships we have, the universe around us, we take these things for granted. 
He nodded toward the window with the sunshine streaming in. You see that? You can go out there, outside, any time. You can run up and down the block and go crazy. I can't do that. I can't go out. I can't run. I can't be out there without fear of getting sick. But you know what? I appreciate that window more than you do. Appreciate it, I said. Yes, I look out that window every day. I notice the change in the trees, how strong the wind is blowing. It's as if I can see time actually passing through that window. Because I know my time is almost done, I'm drawn to nature as if I'm seeing it for the first time. He stopped, and for a moment we both just looked out that window. I tried to see what he saw. I tried to see time and seasons, my life passing in slow motion. Maury dropped his head slightly and curled it towards his shoulder. Is it today, little bird, he asked. Is it today? The seventh Tuesday, we talk about the fear of aging. Maury lost his battle. Someone was now wiping his behind. He faced this with typically brave acceptance. No longer able to reach behind him when he used the commode, he informed Connie of his latest limitation. Would you be too embarrassed to do it for me? She said no. I found it typical that Maury asked her first. It took some getting used to, Maury admitted, because it was, in a way, complete surrender to the disease. The most personal and basic things had now been taken from Maury. Going to the bathroom, wiping his nose, washing his private parts. With the exception of breathing and swallowing his food, he was dependent on others for nearly everything. I asked Maury how he managed to stay positive through that. Mitch, it's funny, he said. I'm an independent person, so my inclination was to fight all of this, being helped from the car, having someone else dress me. I felt a little ashamed, because our culture tells us we should be ashamed if we can't wipe our own behind. But then I figured, forget what the culture says. I've ignored the culture much of my life. I am not going to be ashamed. What's the big deal? And you know what? The strangest thing. What's that, I said. I began to enjoy my dependency. Now I enjoy when they turn me over on my side and rub cream on my behind so I don't get sores, or when they wipe my brow or they massage my legs. I revel in it. I close my eyes and I soak it up, and it seems very familiar to me. It's like going back to being a child again, someone to bathe you, someone to lift you, someone to wipe you. We all know how it is to be a child, it's inside all of us. For me, it's just remembering how to enjoy it. The truth is, when our mothers held us and rocked us and stroked our heads, none of us ever got enough of that. We all yearn in some way to return to those days when we were completely taken care of. Unconditional love, unconditional attention. Most of us didn't get enough. I know I didn't. I looked at Maury and I suddenly knew why he so enjoyed my leaning over and adjusting his microphone or fussing with the pillows or wiping his eyes. Human touch. At 78, Maury was giving as an adult and taking as a child. Later that day, we talked about aging, or maybe I should say the fear of aging, another of the issues on my what's bugging my generation list. On my ride in from the Boston airport, I had counted the billboards that featured young and beautiful people. There was a handsome young man in a cowboy hat smoking a cigarette, two beautiful young women smiling over a shampoo bottle, a sultry-looking teenager with her jeans unsnapped, and a sexy woman in a black velvet dress next to a man in a tuxedo, the two of them snuggling a glass of scotch. Not once did I see anyone who would pass for over 35. 
I told Maury at age 37 I was already feeling over the hill, much as I tried desperately to stay on top of it. I worked out constantly, watched what I ate, checked my hairline in the mirror. I had gone from being proud to say my age because of all I had done so young to not bringing it up for fear I was getting too close to 40 and therefore professional oblivion. Maury had aging in better perspective. All this emphasis on youth, I don't buy it, he said. Listen, I know what a misery being young can be, so don't tell me it's so great. All these kids who came to me with their struggles, their strife, their feelings of inadequacy, their sense that life was miserable, so bad they wanted to kill themselves. And in addition to all the miseries, the young are not so wise. They have very little understanding about life. Who wants to live every day when you don't know what's going on, when people are manipulating you? telling you to buy this perfume and you'll be beautiful or this pair of jeans and you'll be sexy and you believe them it's such nonsense well weren't you ever afraid to grow old i asked mitch i embrace aging embrace it i said it's very simple he said as you grow you learn more if you stayed at 22 you'd always be as ignorant as you were at 22 aging is not just decay you know it's growth it's more than the negative that you're going to die. It's also the positive that you understand you're going to die and that you live a better life because of it. Yeah, I said, but if aging were so valuable, why do people always say, oh, if I were young again? You never hear people say, oh, I wish I were 65. I glanced around Maury's study. It was the same today as it had been the first day I arrived. The books held their same places on the shelves. The papers cluttered the same old desks. The outside rooms had not been improved or upgraded. In fact, Maury really hadn't bought anything new, except medical equipment, in a long, long time, maybe years. The day he learned that he was terminally ill was the day he lost interest in his purchasing power. So the TV was the same old model. The car that Charlotte drove was the same old model. The dishes and the silverware and the towels, all the same. And yet the house had changed so drastically. It had filled with love and teaching and communication, it had filled with friendship and family and honesty and tears. It had filled with colleagues and students and meditation teachers and therapists and nurses and acapella groups. It had become, in a very real way, a wealthy home, even though Maury's bank account was rapidly depleting. There's a big confusion in this country over what we want versus what we need, Maury said. You need food. You want a chocolate sundae. You have to be honest with yourself. You don't need the latest sports car. You don't need the biggest house. The truth is, you don't get satisfaction from these things. You know what really gives you satisfaction? What, I said. Offering others what you have to give. <laughs> you sound like a Boy Scout, I said. I don't mean money, Mitch. I mean your time, your concern, your storytelling. It's not so hard. There's a senior center that opened near here. Dozens of elderly people come there every day. If you're a young man or a young woman and you have a skill, you are asked to come and to teach it. Say you know computers. You come there, you teach them computers. You're very welcome there, and they are very grateful. This is how you start to get respect, by offering something that you have. There are plenty of places to do this. You don't need to have a big talent. There are lonely people in hospitals and shelters who only want some companionship. You play cards with a lonely older man, and you find new respect for yourself because you are needed. 
Remember what I said about finding a meaningful life. I wrote it down, but now I can recite it. Devote yourself to loving others. Devote yourself to your community around you. And devote yourself to creating something that gives you purpose and meaning. You notice, he added, grinning, there's nothing in there about a salary. I jotted down some of the things Maury was saying on a yellow pad. I did this mostly because I didn't want him to see my eyes, to know what I was thinking, that I had been, for much of my life since graduation, pursuing these very things he was just railing against. Bigger toys, nicer house. Because I worked amongst rich and famous athletes, I convinced myself that my needs were realistic, my greed inconsequential compared to theirs. This was a smokescreen, and Maury made that obvious. Mitch, if you're trying to show off for people at the top, forget it. They will look down at you anyhow. And if you're trying to show off for people at the bottom, forget it. They will only envy you. Status will get you nowhere. Only an open heart will allow you to float equally between everyone. He paused and looked at me. I'm dying, right? He said. Yes, I said. Why do you think it's so important for me to hear other people's problems? Don't I have enough pain and suffering of my own? Of course I do. But giving to other people is what makes me feel alive. Not my car or my house. Not what I look like in the mirror. When I give my time, when I can make someone smile after they were feeling sad, it's as close to healthy as I ever feel. Do the kind of things that come from the heart. When you do, you won't be dissatisfied, you won't be envious, you won't be longing for somebody else's things. On the contrary, you'll be overwhelmed with what comes back. He coughed and reached for the small bell that lay on the chair. He had to poke a few times at it, and I finally picked it up and put it in his hand. Thank you, he whispered. He shook it weakly, trying to get Connie's attention. This Ted Turner guy, Maury said. He couldn't think of anything else for his tombstone. Each night when I go to sleep, I die, and the next morning when I wake up, I am reborn. Mahatma Gandhi The ninth Tuesday, we talk about how love goes on. The leaves had begun to change color, turning the ride through West Newton into a portrait of golden rust. Back in Detroit, the labor war had stagnated, with each side accusing the other of failing to communicate. The stories on the TV news were just as depressing. In rural Kentucky, three men threw pieces of a tombstone off a bridge, smashing the windshield of a passing car, killing a teenage girl who was traveling with her family on a religious pilgrimage. In California, the O.J. Simpson trial was heading toward a conclusion, and the whole country seemed to be obsessed. Even in airports, there were hanging TV sets tuned to CNN so that you could get an O.J. update as you made your way to a gate. I tried calling my brother in Spain several times. I left messages saying that I really wanted to talk to him, that I had been doing a lot of thinking about us. A few weeks later, I got back a short message saying everything was okay, but he was sorry he really didn't feel like talking about being sick. For my old professor, it was not the talk of being sick, but the being sick itself that was sinking him. Since my last visit, a nurse had inserted a catheter into his penis, which drew the urine out through a tube and into a bag that sat at the foot of his chair. His legs needed constant tending, he could still feel pain, even though he could not move those legs, another one of ALS's cruel little ironies. And unless his feet dangled just the right number of inches off the foam pads, it felt as if someone were poking him with a fork. 
In the middle of conversations, Maury would have to ask visitors to lift his foot and move it just an inch, or to adjust his head so that it fit more easily into the palm of the colored pillows. Can you imagine being unable to move your own head? With each visit, Maury seemed to be melting into his chair, his spine taking on its shape. Still, every morning he insisted on being lifted from his bed and wheeled to his study, deposited there amongst his books and papers and the hibiscus plant on the windowsill. In typical fashion, he found something philosophical in this. I sum it up in my latest aphorism, he said. Let me hear it, I said. When you're in bed, you're dead. He smiled. Only Maury could smile at something like that. He'd been getting calls from the Nightline people and from Ted Koppel himself. They want to come and do another show with me, he said. But they say they want to wait. Until what, I said? Your last breath? Maybe, he said. Anyhow, I'm not so far away. Don't say that, Maury. I'm sorry. That bugs me that they want to wait until you wither. It bugs you because you look out for me. He smiled. Mitch, maybe they are using me for a little drama. That's okay. Maybe I'm using them too. They helped me get my message to millions of people. I couldn't do that without them, right? So it's a compromise. He coughed, which turned into a long, drawn-out gargle, ending with another glob into a crushed tissue. Anyhow, Maury said finally, I told them they better not wait too long, because my voice won't be there. Once this thing hits my lungs, talking may become impossible. I can't speak now for too long without needing a rest. I have already canceled a lot of the people who want to see me. Mitch, there are so many, but I'm too fatigued. If I can't give them the right attention, I can't help them. I looked at the tape recorder feeling guilty, as if I were stealing what was left of his precious speaking time. Should we skip it, I asked? Will it make you too tired? Maury shut his eyes and shook his head. He seemed to be waiting for some silent pain to pass. No, he finally said. You and I have to go on. This is our last thesis together, you know. Our last thesis, I said. Yes, we want to get it right. I thought about our first thesis together in college. It was Maury's idea, of course. He told me I was good enough to write an honors project, something I had never considered. Now here we were doing the same thing once more, starting with an idea. Dying man talks to living man, tells him what he should know. This time, I was in less of a hurry to finish. Someone asked me an interesting question yesterday, Maury said now, looking over my shoulder at the wall hanging behind me, a quilt of hopeful messages that friends had stitched for him on his 70th birthday. Each patch on the quilt had a different message. Stay the course, said one. The best is yet to be. Or Maury, always number one in mental health. What was the question, I asked. Maury said, The question was if I worried about being forgotten after I died. Well, I said, do you? I don't think I will be. I've got so many people who have been involved with me in close, intimate ways. And love is how you stay alive, even after you are gone. Sounds like a song lyric, I said. Love is how you stay alive. Maury chuckled. Maybe. But Mitch, all this talk that we're doing, do you ever hear my voice sometimes when you're back home, when you're all alone, maybe on the plane, maybe in your car? Yes, I admitted I do. Then you will not forget me after I'm gone. Think of my voice, and I'll be there. Think of your voice, I said. And if you want to cry a little, it's okay. 
Maury. He'd always wanted to make me cry since I was a freshman. One of these days, he would say, I'm going to get to you. Yeah, yeah, I would answer. I decided what I want on my tombstone, he said. I don't want to hear about tombstones, I said. Why, they make you nervous? I shrugged. We can forget it. No, no, I said, go ahead. What did you decide? Maury popped his lips. I was thinking of this. A teacher to the last. He waited while I absorbed it. A teacher to the last. Good, he said. Yes, I said. Very good. I came to love the way Maury lit up when I entered the room. He did this for many people, I know, but it was his special talent to make each visitor feel that the smile was unique. Ah, it's my buddy, he would say when he saw me in that foggy, high-pitched voice. And it didn't stop with the greeting. When Maury was with you, he was really with you. He looked you straight in the eye, and he listened as if you were the only person in the world. How much better would people get along if their first encounter each day were like this, instead of a grumble from a waitress or a bus driver or a boss? I believe in being fully present, Maury said. That means you should be with the person you're with. When I'm talking to you now, Mitch, I try to keep focused only on what is going on between us. I'm not thinking about something we said last week. I am not thinking of what's coming up this Friday. I am not thinking about doing another Ted Koppel show or about what medications I'm taking. I am talking to you. I'm thinking about you. I remembered how he used to teach this idea in the group process class back at Brandeis. I had scoffed back then, thinking this was hardly a lesson plan for a university course. Learning to pay attention? How important could that be? I now know it's more important than almost everything they taught us in college. Maury motioned for my hand, and as I gave it to him, I felt a surge of guilt. Here was a man who, if he wanted, could spend every waking moment in self-pity, feeling his body for decay, counting his breaths. So many people with far smaller problems are so self-absorbed. Their eyes glaze over if you speak for more than 30 seconds. They already have something else in mind by that point, a friend to call, a fax to send, a lover they're daydreaming about. They only snap back to full attention when you finish talking, at which point they say, uh-huh, or yeah, really, and fake their way back to the moment. Part of the problem, Mitch, Maury said, is that everyone is in such a hurry. People haven't found meaning in their lives, so they're running all the time, looking for it. They think the next car, the next house the next job. Then they find those things are empty too, and they keep running. Once you start running, I said, it's hard to slow yourself down. Not so hard, Maury said, shaking his head. Do you know what I do? When someone wants to get ahead of me in traffic, when I used to be able to drive, I would raise my hand. He tried to do this now, but the hand lifted weakly, only six inches. I would raise my hand as if I was going to make a negative gesture, and then I would wave and smile. Instead of giving them the finger, you let them go and you smile. And you know what? A lot of times they smiled back. The truth is, I don't have to be in that much of a hurry with my car. I would rather put my energies into people. Maury did this better than anyone I've ever known. Those who sat with him saw his eyes go moist when they spoke about something horrible 
or crinkle in delight when they told him a really bad joke. He was always ready to openly display the emotion so often missing from my baby boomer generation. We are great at small talk. What do you do? Where do you live? But really listening to someone? Without trying to sell them something or pick them up or recruit them or get some kind of status in return? Well, how often do we do that anymore? I believe many visitors in the last months of Maury's life were drawn not because of the attention they wanted to pay to him, but because of the attention he paid to them. Despite his personal pain and decay, this little old man listened the way they always wanted someone to listen. I told him he was the father everyone wishes they had. Well, Maury said, closing his eyes, I have some experience in that area. The last time Maury saw his own father was in a city morgue. Charlie Schwartz was a quiet man who liked to read his newspaper alone under a street lamp on Tremont Avenue in the Bronx. Every night, when Maury was little, Charlie would go for a walk after dinner. He was a small Russian man with a ruddy complexion and a full head of grayish hair. Maury and his brother David would look out the window and see their father leaning against the lamppost, and Maury wished he would come inside and talk to them. But he rarely did, nor did he tuck them in, nor did he kiss them good night. Maury always swore he would do these things for his own children, if he ever had any, and years later, when he did have them, he did. Meanwhile, as Maury raised his own children, Charlie was still living in the Bronx. He still took that walk. He still read the paper. One night, he went outside after dinner. A few blocks from home, he was accosted by two robbers. "'Give us your money,' one said, pulling a gun." Frightened, Charlie threw down his wallet and began to run. He ran through the streets and kept running until he reached the steps of a relative's house, where he collapsed on the porch. Heart attack. He died that night. Maury was called to identify the body. He flew to New York and went to the morgue. He was taken downstairs to the cold room where the corpses were kept. "'Is this your father?' the attendant asked. Maury looked at the body behind the glass the body of the man who had scolded him and molded him and taught him to work, who had been quiet when Maury wanted him to speak, who had told Maury to swallow his memories of his mother when he wanted to share them with the world. Maury nodded at the corpse, and he walked away. The horror of the room, he would later say, sucked all other functions out of him. He did not cry until days later. Still, his father's death helped prepare Maury for his own. This much he knew— there would be lots of holding and kissing and talking and laughter and no goodbyes left unsaid, all the things he missed with his father and his mother. When the final moment came, Maury wanted his loved ones around him, knowing what was happening. No one would get a phone call or a telegram. No one would have to look through a glass window in some cold and foreign basement. In the South American rainforest, there is a tribe called the Dasana, who see the world as a fixed quantity of energy that flows between all creatures. Every birth must therefore engender a death, and every death bring forth another birth. This way, the energy of the world remains complete. When they hunt for food, the Dasana know that the animals they kill will leave a hole in the spiritual well, but that hole will be filled, they believe, by the souls of the Dasana hunters when they die. Were there no men dying, there would be no birds or fish being born. I like this idea. Maury likes it, too. The closer he gets to a goodbye, the more he seems to feel we are all creatures in the same forest. What we take, we must replenish. It's only fair, he says. 
The 11th Tuesday, we talk about our culture. Hit him harder. I slapped Maury's back. Harder. I slapped him again. Near his shoulders. Now down lower. Maury, dressed in pajama bottoms, lay in bed on his side, his head flush against the pillow, his mouth open. The physical therapist was showing me how to bang loose the poison in his lungs, which he needed done regularly now to keep it from solidifying, to keep him breathing. I always knew you wanted to hit me, Maury gasped. Yeah, I joked as I wrapped my fist against the alabaster skin of his back. This is for that bee you gave me sophomore year. Whack! We all laughed, a nervous laughter that comes when the devil is within earshot. It would have been cute, this little scene, were it not what we all knew it was, the final calisthenics before death. Maury's disease was now dangerously close to his surrender spot, his lungs. He had been predicting he would die from choking, and I could not imagine a more terrible way to go. Sometimes he would close his eyes and try to draw the air up into his mouth and nostrils, and it seemed as if he were trying to lift an anchor. Outside it was jacket weather, early October. The leaves clumped in piles on the lawns around West Newton. Maury's physical therapist had come earlier in the day, and I usually excused myself when nurses or specialists had business with him. But as the weeks passed and our time ran down, I was increasingly less self-conscious about the physical embarrassment. I wanted to be there. I wanted to observe everything. This was not like me, but then neither were a lot of things that had happened these last few months in Maury's house. So I watched the therapist work on Maury in the bed, pounding the back of his ribs, asking if he could feel the congestion loosening within him. And when she took a break, she asked if I wanted to try it myself. I said yes. Maury, his face on the pillow, gave a little smile. Not too hard, he said. I'm an old man. I drummed on his back and sides, moving around as she instructed. I hated the idea of Maury's lying in bed under any circumstances. His last aphorism, when you're in bed, you're dead, rang in my ears. And curled on his side, he was so small, so withered, it was more a boy's body than a man's. I saw the paleness of his skin, the stray white hairs, the way his arms hung limp and helpless. I thought about how much time we spend trying to shape our bodies, lifting weights, crunching sit-ups, and in the end, nature takes it away from us anyhow. Beneath my fingers, I felt the loose flesh around Maury's bones, and I thumped him hard, as instructed. The truth is, I was pounding on his back when I wanted to be hitting the walls. Mitch! Maury gasped, his voice jumpy as a jackhammer as I pounded on him. Yeah, I said. When did I give you a B? Maury believed in the inherent good of all people, but he also saw what they could become. People are only mean when they're threatened, he said later that day. And that's what our culture does. That's what our economy does. Even people who have jobs in our economy are threatened because they worry about losing them. And when you get threatened, you start looking out only for yourself. You start making money a god. It's all part of this culture. He exhaled, which is why I don't buy into it. I nodded at him and squeezed his hand. We held hands regularly now. This was another change for me. Things that before would have made me embarrassed or squeamish were now routinely handled. The catheter bag, connected to the tube inside him and filled with greenish waste fluid, lay by my foot near the leg of his chair. A few months earlier, it might have disgusted me. It was inconsequential now. So was the smell of the room after Maury had used the commode. He did not have the luxury of moving from place to place, 
of closing a bathroom door behind him, spraying some air freshener when he left. There was his bed, there was his chair, and that was his life. If my life were squeezed into such a thimble, I doubt I could make it smell any better. Here's what I mean by building your own little subculture, Maury said. I don't mean you disregard every rule of your community. I don't go around naked, for example. I don't run through red lights. The little things I can obey. But the big things, how we think, what we value, those you must choose yourself. You can't let anyone or any society determine those for you. Take my condition, Mitch. The things I'm supposed to be embarrassed about now, not being able to walk, not being able to wipe my ass, waking up some mornings wanting to cry. There is nothing innately embarrassing or shaming about them. It's the same for women not being thin enough or men not being rich enough. It's just what our culture would have you believe, but don't believe it. I asked Maury why he hadn't moved somewhere else when he was younger. Where, he said. I don't know, South America, New Guinea, someplace not as selfish as America. Every society has its problems, Maury said, lifting his eyebrows, the closest he could come to a shrug. The way to do it, I think, is not to run away. You have to work at creating your own culture. Look, no matter where you live, the biggest deficit we human beings have is our short-sightedness. We don't see what we could be. We should be looking at our potential, stretching ourselves into everything we can become. But if you're surrounded by people who say, I want mine now, you end up with a few people with everything and a military to keep the poor ones from rising up and stealing it. Maury looked over my shoulder to the far window. Sometimes you could hear a passing truck or a whip of the wind. He gazed for a moment at his neighbor's houses. Then he continued, The problem Mitch, is that we don't believe we are as much alike as we are. Whites and blacks, Catholics and Protestants, men and women. If we saw each other as more alike, we might be very eager to join in one big human family in this world and to care about that family the way we care about our own. But believe me, when you are dying, you see it is true. We have all the same beginning, birth, and we all have the same end, death. So how different can we be? Invest in the human family. Invest in people. Build a little community of those you love and who love you. He squeezed my hand gently. I squeezed back harder. And like that carnival contest where you bang a hammer and watch the disc rise up the pole, I could almost see my body heat rise up Maury's chest and neck into his cheeks and eyes. He smiled. In the beginning of life, when we are infants, we need others to survive, right? And at the end of life, when you get like me, you need others to survive, right? His voice dropped to an even lower whisper. But here's the secret. In between, we need others as well. Later that afternoon, Connie and I went into the bedroom to watch the O.J. Simpson verdict. It was a tense scene as the principals all turned to face the jury. Simpson in his blue suit, surrounded by his small army of lawyers, the prosecutors who wanted him behind bars just a few feet away. When the foreman read the verdict, not guilty, Connie shrieked, Oh my God! We watched as Simpson hugged his lawyers. 
We listened as the commentators tried to explain what it all meant. We saw crowds of blacks celebrating in the streets outside the courthouses and crowds of whites sitting stunned inside restaurants. The decision was being hailed as momentous, even though murders take place every day. Connie went out in the hall. She'd seen enough. I heard the door to Maury's study close. I stared at the TV set. Everyone in the world is watching this thing, I told myself. Then from the other room, I heard the ruffling of Maury's being lifted from the chair, and I smiled. As the trial of the century reached its dramatic conclusion, my old professor was sitting on the toilet. The Audiovisual, Part 3 The Nightline crew came back for its third and final visit. The whole tenor of the thing was different now, less like an interview, more like a sad farewell. Ted Koppel had called several times before coming up, and he had asked Maury, Do you think you can handle it? Maury wasn't sure he could. I'm tired all the time now, Ted, and I'm choking a lot. If I can't say something, will you say it for me? Koppel said, sure. And then the normally stoic anchor added this. If you don't want to do it, Maury, it's okay. I'll come up and say goodbye anyhow. Later, Maury would grin mischievously and say, I'm getting to him. And he was. Koppel now referred to Maury as a friend. My old professor had even coaxed compassion out of the television business. For the interview, which took place on a Friday afternoon, Maury wore the same shirt he'd had on the day before. He changed shirts only every other day at this point, and this was not the other day, so why break routine? Unlike the previous two Koppel-Schwartz sessions, this one was conducted entirely within Maury's study, where Maury had become a prisoner of his chair. Koppel, who kissed my old professor when he saw him, now had to squeeze in alongside the bookcase in order to be seen by the camera's lens. Before they started, Koppel asked about the disease's progression. How bad is it, Maury? Maury weakly lifted a hand halfway up his belly. This was as far as he could go. Koppel had his answer. The camera rolled the third and final interview. Koppel asked if Maury was more afraid now that death was near. Maury said no. To tell the truth, he was less afraid. He said he was letting go of some of the outside world, not having the newspaper read to him as much, not paying as much attention to mail, instead listening more to music and watching the leaves change color through his window. There were other people who suffered from ALS, Maury knew, some of them famous, such as Stephen Hawking, the brilliant physicist and author of A Brief History of Time. He lived with a hole in his throat, spoke through a computer synthesizer, typed words by batting his eyes as a sensor picked up the movement. This was admirable, but it was not the way Maury wanted to live. He told Koppel he knew when it would be time to say goodbye. For me, Ted, living means I can be responsive to the other person. It means I can show my emotions and my feelings, talk to them, feel with them. When that's gone, Maury is gone. They talk like friends. As he had in the previous two interviews, Koppel asked about the old asswipe test, hoping perhaps for a humorous response. But Maury was too tired to even grin. He shook his head. When I sit on the commode, I can no longer sit up straight. I'm listing all the time, so they have to hold me. When I'm done, they have to wipe me. This is how far it's gotten. He told Koppel he wanted to die with serenity. He shared his latest aphorism, don't let go too soon, but don't hang on too long. Koppel nodded painfully. 
Only six months had passed between the first Nightline show and this one, but Maury Schwartz was clearly a collapsed form. He had decayed before a national TV audience, a miniseries of death, but as his body rotted, his character shone even more brightly. Toward the end of the interview, the camera zoomed in on Maury. Koppel was not even in the picture, only his voice was heard from outside it. And the anchor asked if my old professor had anything he wanted to say to the millions of people he had touched. Although he did not mean it this way, I couldn't help but think of a condemned man being asked for his final words. Be compassionate, Maury whispered, and take responsibility for each other. If we only learned these lessons, this world would be so much better a place. He took a breath, then added his mantra, Love each other or die. The interview was ended, but for some reason the cameraman left the film rolling, and one final scene was caught on tape. You did a good job, Koppel said. Maury smiled weakly. I gave you what I had, he whispered. You always do, Koppel said. Ted, this disease is knocking at my spirit, but it will not get my spirit. It'll get my body, but it will not get my spirit. Koppel was near tears. You done good, he said. You think so? Maury rolled his eyes toward the ceiling. I'm bargaining with him up there now. I'm asking him, do I get to be one of the angels? It was the first time Maury admitted talking to God. The Twelfth Tuesday, we talk about forgiveness. Forgive yourself before you die, then forgive others. This was Maury a few days after the Nightline interview. The sky was rainy and dark, and he was beneath a blanket. I sat at the far end of his chair, holding his bare feet. They were calloused and curled, and his toenails were yellow. I had a small jar of lotion, and I squeezed some into my hands and began to massage his ankles. It was another of the things I had watched his helpers do for months, and now, in an attempt to hold on to what I could of him, I had volunteered to do it myself. The disease had left Maury without the ability even to wiggle his toes, and yet he could still feel pain, and massages helped relieve it. Also, of course, Maury liked being held and touched, and at this point, anything I could do to make him happy, I was going to do. Mitch, he said, returning to the subject of forgiveness, there is no point in keeping vengeance or stubbornness. These things, these things I so regret in my life. Pride, vanity, why do we do the things we do? The importance of forgiving had been my question. I'd seen those movies where the patriarch of a family is on his deathbed and he calls for his estranged son so that he can make peace before he goes. I wondered if Maury had any of that inside him, a sudden need to say, I'm sorry, before he died. Maury nodded. Do you see that sculpture? He tilted his head towards a bust that sat high in a shelf against the far wall of the office. I'd never really noticed it before. Cast in bronze, it was the face of a man in his early forties, wearing a necktie, a tuft of hair falling across his forehead. That's me, Maury said. A friend of mine sculpted that maybe thirty years ago. His name was Norman. We used to spend so much time together. We went swimming. We took rides to New York. He had me over to his house in Cambridge, and he sculpted that bust of me down in his basement. 
It took several weeks to do it, but he really wanted to get it right. I studied that face. How strange to see a three-dimensional Mori, so healthy, so young, watching over us as we spoke. Even in bronze, he had a whimsical look, and I thought this friend had sculpted a little spirit as well. Well, Maury said, here's the sad part of the story. Norman and his wife moved away to Chicago. A little while later, my wife Charlotte had to have a pretty serious operation. Norman and his wife never got in touch with us. I know they knew about it. Charlotte and I were very hurt because they never called to see how she was. So we dropped the relationship. Over the years, I met Norman a few times, and he always tried to reconcile, but I didn't accept it. I wasn't satisfied with his explanation. I was prideful. I shrugged him off. Maury's voice choked now. Mitch, a few years ago, he died of cancer. I feel so bad. I never got to see him. I never got to forgive it pains me so much now. He was crying again, a soft and quiet cry. And because his head was back, the tears rolled off the side of his face before they reached his lips. Sorry, I said. Don't be, he whispered. Tears are okay. I continued rubbing lotion into his lifeless toes. He wept for a few minutes, alone with his memories. Mitch, it's not just other people we need to forgive. We also need to forgive ourselves. Ourselves, I said. Yes, for all the things we didn't do, all the things we should have done. You can't get stuck on the regrets of what should have happened. That doesn't help you when you get to where I am. I always wished I had done more with my work. I wished I had written more books. I used to beat myself up over it. And now I see that never did any good. Make peace. You need to make peace with yourself and everyone around you. I leaned over and dabbed at the tears with the tissue. Maury flicked his eyes open and closed. His breathing was audible now, like a light snore. Forgive yourself. Forgive others. Don't wait, Mitch. Not everyone gets the time I'm getting. Not everyone is as lucky. I tossed the tissue into the wastebasket and returned to his feet. Lucky? I pressed my thumb into his hardened flesh, and he didn't even feel it. The tension of opposites, Mitch, he said. Remember that. Things pulling in different directions. I remember, I said. I mourn my dwindling time, but I cherish the chance it gives me to make things right. We sat there for a while, quietly, as the rain splattered against the windows. The hibiscus plant behind his head was still holding on, small but firm. Mitch, Maury whispered. Uh-huh, I said. I rolled his toes between my fingers, lost in the task. Look at me. I glanced up and saw the most intense look in his eyes. I don't know why you came back to me. But I want to say this. He paused and his voice choked. If I could have had another son, I would have liked it to be you. 
I dropped my eyes, kneading the dying flesh of his feet between my fingers. For a moment I felt afraid, as if accepting his words would somehow betray my own father. But when I looked up, I saw Maury smiling through tears, and I knew there was no betrayal in a moment like this. All I was afraid of was saying goodbye. I've picked a place to be buried. Where's that, I said. Not far from here, on a hill beneath a tree overlooking a pond. Very serene, a good place to think. Are you planning on thinking there, I said. I'm planning on being dead there. He chuckled, I chuckled. Will you visit? Visit, I said. Just come and talk. Make it a Tuesday. You always come on Tuesdays. Oh, we're Tuesday people, I said. Right. Tuesday people. Come to talk then. He'd grown so weak so fast. Look at me, he said. I'm looking, I said. You'll come to my grave to tell me your problems. My problems? Yes. And you'll give me answers? I'll give you what I can. Don't I always... I picture his grave on the hill overlooking the pond, some little nine-foot piece of earth where they'll place him, cover him with dirt, put a stone on top. Maybe in a few weeks, maybe in a few days. I see myself sitting there alone, arms across my knees, staring into space. It won't be the same, Maury, I say, not being able to hear you talk. Ah, talk. He closed his eyes and smiled. Tell you what, after I'm dead... You talk, and I'll listen. The 13th Tuesday, we talk about the perfect day. Maury wanted to be cremated. He had discussed it with Charlotte, and they decided it was the best way. The rabbi from Brandeis, Al Axelrod, a longtime friend whom they chose to conduct the funeral service, had come to visit Maury, and Maury told him of his cremation plans. And Al... Yes? Make sure they don't overcook me. The rabbi was stunned, but Maury was able to joke about his body now. The closer he got to the end, the more he saw it as a mere shell, a container of the soul. It was withering to useless skin and bones anyhow, which made it easier to let go. We're so afraid of the sight of death, Maury told me when I sat down. I adjusted the microphone in his collar, but it kept flopping over. Maury coughed. He was coughing all the time now. I read a book the other day, he said. It said as soon as someone dies in a hospital, they pull the sheets over his head and they wheel the body to some chute and they put it down. They can't wait to get it out of their sight. People act as if death is contagious. I fumbled with the microphone. Maury glanced at my hands. It's not contagious, you know. Death is as natural as life. It's part of the deal we made. He coughed again and I moved back and waited, always braced for something serious. Maury had been having bad nights lately, frightening nights. He could sleep only a few hours at a time before violent hacking spells woke him. The nurses would come into the bedroom, pound him on the back, try to bring up the poison. Even if they got him breathing normally again, normally meaning with the help of an oxygen machine, the fight left him fatigued the whole next day. The oxygen tube was up his nose now. I hated the sight of it. To me, it symbolized helplessness, and I wanted to pull it out. Last night, Maury said softly. Yes, I said, last night. 
Last night, I had a terrible spell. It went on for hours, and I really wasn't sure I was going to make it. No breath, no end to the choking. At one point, I started to get dizzy, and then I felt a certain peace. I felt that I was ready to go. His eyes widened. Mitch, it was the most incredible feeling. The sensation of accepting what was happening, being at peace. I was thinking about a dream I had last week, where I was crossing a bridge into something unknown, being ready to move on to whatever's next. But you didn't cross it, I said. Maury waited a moment. He shook his head slightly. No, I didn't. But I felt that I could. Do you understand? That's what we're all looking for. A certain peace with the idea of dying. If we know in the end that we can ultimately have that peace with dying, then we can finally do the really hard thing. Which is, I said, make peace with living. He asked to see the hibiscus plant on the ledge behind him. I cupped it in my hand and held it up near his eyes. He smiled. It's natural to die. The fact that we make such a big hullabaloo over it is because we don't see ourselves as part of nature. We think because we're human, we're something above nature. He smiled at the plant. We're not. Everything that gets born dies. Do you accept that? Yes, I said. All right. Now, here's the payoff. Here is how we are different from those wonderful plants and animals. As long as we can love each other and remember the feeling of love we had, we can die without ever really going away. All the love you created is still there. All the memories are still there. You live on in the hearts of everyone you have touched and nurtured while you were here. His voice was raspy, which usually meant he needed to stop for a while. I placed the plant back on the ledge and went to shut off the tape recorder. This is the last sentence Maury got out before I did. Death ends a life, not a relationship. There had been a development in the treatment of ALS, an experimental drug that was just gaining passage. It was not a cure, but a delay, a slowing of the decay for perhaps a few months. Maury had heard about it, but he was too far gone. Besides, the medicine wouldn't be available for several months. Not for me, Maury said, dismissing it. And all the time he was sick, Maury never held out hope that he would be cured. He was realistic to a fault. One time I asked if someone were to wave a magic wand and make him all better, would he become in time the man he had been before? He shook his head. No way I could go back. I'm a different self now. I'm different in my attitudes. I'm different appreciating my body, which I didn't do fully before. I'm different in terms of trying to grapple with the big questions, the ultimate questions, the ones that won't go away. That's the thing, you see. Once you get your fingers on the important questions, you can't turn away from them. And which are the important questions, I asked? As I see it, they have to do with love, responsibility, spirituality, awareness. And if I were healthy today, 
those would still be my issues. They should have been all along. I tried to imagine Maury healthy. I tried to imagine him pulling the covers from his body, stepping from that chair, the two of us going for a walk around the neighborhood the way we used to walk around campus. I suddenly realized it had been 16 years since I'd seen him standing up. 16 years? What if you had one day perfectly healthy, I asked Maury. What would you do? 24 hours? 24 hours, I said. Let's see. I'd get up in the morning, do my exercises, have a lovely breakfast of sweet rolls and tea, go for a swim, then have my friends come over for a nice lunch. I'd have them come one or two at a time so we could talk about their families and their issues and talk about how much we mean to each other. Then I'd like to go for a walk in a garden with some trees, watch the colors, watch the birds, take in the nature that I haven't seen now in so long. In the evening, we could all go together to a restaurant with some great pasta, maybe some duck. I love duck. And then we danced the rest of the night. I would dance with all the wonderful dance partners out there until I was exhausted. And then I'd go home and have a deep, wonderful sleep. That's it, I said. That's it. It was so simple, so average. I was actually a little disappointed. I figured he'd fly to Italy or have lunch with the president or romp on the seashore or try every exotic thing he could think of. After all these months lying there unable to move a leg or a foot, how could he find perfection in such an average day? Then I realized this was the whole point. Before I left that day, Maury asked if he could bring up a topic. Your brother, he said. I felt a shiver. I don't know how Maury knew this was on my mind. I've been trying to call my brother in Spain for weeks and had learned from a friend of his that he was flying back and forth to a hospital in Amsterdam. Mitch, Maury said, I know it hurts when you can't be with someone you love, but you need to be at peace with his desires. Maybe he doesn't want you interrupting your life. Maybe he can't deal with that burden. I tell everyone I know to carry on with the life they know. Don't ruin it because I am dying. But he's my brother, I said. I know. That's why it hurts. I saw Peter in my mind when he was eight years old, his curly blonde hair puffed into a sweaty ball atop his head. I saw us wrestling in the yard next to our house, the grass stains soaking through the knees of our jeans. I saw him singing songs in front of the mirror, holding a brush as a microphone. And I saw us squeezing into the attic where we hid together as children, testing our parents' will to find us for dinner. And then I saw him as the adult who had drifted away, thin and frail, his face bony from the chemotherapy treatments. Maury, I said, why doesn't he want to see me? My old professor sighed. There is no formula to relationships. They have to be negotiated in loving ways, with room for both parties, what they want and what they need, and what they can do, and what their life is like. In business, people negotiate to win. They negotiate to get what they want. Maybe, Mitch, you're too used to that. Love is different. Love is when you are as concerned about someone else's situation as you are about 
your own. You've had these special times with your brother and you no longer have what you had with him and you want them back. You want them never to stop. But that's part of being human. Stop, renew, stop, renew. I looked at Maury. I saw all the depths in the world. I felt helpless. You'll find a way back to your brother, Maury said. How do you know? I said. Maury smiled. You found me, didn't you? I heard a nice little story the other day, Maury says. He closes his eyes for a moment and I wait. Okay, the story is about a little wave bobbing along in the ocean, having a grand old time. He's enjoying the wind and the fresh air until he notices the other waves in front of him crashing against the shore. My God, this is terrible, the wave says. Look what's going to happen to me. Then along comes another wave. It sees the first wave looking grim and it says, Why do you look so sad? The first wave says, You don't understand. We're all going to crash. All of us waves are going to be nothing. Isn't it terrible? The second wave says, No, you don't understand. You're not a wave. You're part of the ocean. I smiled at the story and Maury closes his eyes again. Part of the ocean, he says. Part of the ocean. I watch him breathe in and out, in and out. Graduation Maury died on a Saturday morning. His immediate family was with him in the house. Rob made it in from Tokyo. He got to kiss his father goodbye. And John was there, and of course Charlotte, and Charlotte's cousin Marcia, who had written the poem that so moved Maury at his unofficial memorial service, the poem that likened him to a tender sequoia. They slept in shifts around his bed. Maury had fallen into a coma two days after our final visit, and the doctor said he could go at any moment. Instead, he hung on, through a tough afternoon, through a dark night. Finally, on the 4th of November, when those he loved had left the room just for a moment, to grab coffee in the kitchen, the first time none of them were with him since the coma began, Maury stopped breathing, and he was gone. I believe he died this way on purpose. I believe he wanted no chilling moments, no one to witness his last breath and be haunted by it, the way he had been haunted by his mother's death notice telegram or by his father's corpse in the city morgue. I believe he knew that he was in his own bed, that his books and his notes and his small hibiscus plant were nearby. He wanted to go serenely, and that is how he went. The funeral was held on a damp, windy morning. The grass was wet and the sky was the color of milk. We stood by the hole in the earth, close enough to hear the pond water lapping against the edge and to see ducks shaking off their feathers. Although hundreds of people had wanted to attend, Charlotte kept this gathering small, just a few close friends and relatives. Rabbi Axelrod read a few poems. Maury's brother David, who still walked with a limp from his childhood polio, lifted the shovel and tossed dirt into the grave, as per tradition. At one point, when Maury's ashes were placed into the ground, I glanced around the cemetery. Maury was right. It was indeed a lovely place. Trees and grass and a sloping hill. You talk, I'll listen, he had said. I tried doing that in my head, and to my happiness, found that the imagined conversation felt almost natural. I looked down at my hands, 
saw my watch, and realized why. It was Tuesday. My father moved through days of we, singing each new leaf out of each tree, and every child was sure that spring danced when she heard my father sing. A poem by E. E. Cummings, read by Maury's son Rob, at the funeral service. Conclusion I look back sometimes at the person I was before I rediscovered my old professor. I want to talk to that person. I want to tell him what to look out for, what mistakes to avoid. I want to tell him to be more open, to ignore the lure of advertised values, to pay attention when your loved ones are speaking, as if it were the last time you might hear them. Mostly, I want to tell that person to get on an airplane and visit a gentle old man in West Newton, Massachusetts, sooner rather than later before that old man gets sick and loses his ability to dance. I know I cannot do this. None of us can undo what we've done or relive a life already recorded. But if Professor Morris Schwartz taught me anything at all, it was this. There is no such thing as too late in life. He was changing until the day he said goodbye. Not long after Morris' death, I reached my brother in Spain. We had a long talk. I told him I respected his distance and that all I wanted was to be in touch in the present, not just the past, to hold him in my life as much as he could let me. You're my only brother, I said. I don't want to lose you. I love you. I'd never said such a thing to him before. A few days later, I received a message on my fax machine. It was typed in a sprawling, poorly punctuated, all-cap letters fashion that always characterized my brother's words. Hi, I've joined the 90s, it began. He wrote a few little stories, what he'd been doing that week, and a couple of jokes, At the end, he signed off this way. I have heartburn and diarrhea at the moment. Life's a bitch. Chat later. Signed, Sore Tush. I laughed until there were tears in my eyes. This book was largely Maury's idea. He called it our final thesis. Like the best of work projects, it brought us closer together. And Maury was delighted when several publishers expressed interest, even though he died before meeting any of them. The advance money helped pay Maury's enormous medical bills, and for that, we were both grateful. The title, by the way, we came up with one day in Maury's office. He liked naming things, he had several ideas, but when I said, how about Tuesdays with Maury, he smiled in an almost blushing way, and I knew that was it. After Maury died, I went through boxes of old college material, and I discovered a final paper I had written for one of his classes. It was 20 years old now. On the front page were my penciled comments scribbled to Maury, and beneath them were his comments scribbled back. Mine began, Dear Coach. His began, Dear Player. For some reason, each time I read that, I miss him even more. Have you ever really had a teacher? One who saw you as a raw but precious thing, a jewel that with wisdom could be polished to a proud shine? If you're lucky enough to find your way to such teachers, you will always find your way back. Sometimes it's only in your head. Sometimes it's right alongside their beds. He looked at me. The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his home by a window in his study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink flowers. The class met on Tuesdays. No books were required. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. The teaching goes on. Through my diary, I'm teaching people how to live so that when they come to the end of their life, 
he won't be so disappointed as to what they did with it. I was having trouble walking. Couldn't walk upstairs very well. Go with my wife, we walk a few blocks, I'm tired. Oh, I thought, well, getting old. Then I go on a dance floor and I stumble. Was that one of your solo dances, or did you actually have a partner in that? I had my wife. Uh-huh. My solo dances, I never stumbled. <laughs> when I finally heard the fact that I had ALS, I was stunned, overwhelmed, shocked, non-believing, and say, it's not possible. That was my immediate reaction. I knew enough to know it was fatal. I knew enough about Lou Gehrig, since he was my day. And I remember his speech, you know, and all that sort of thing, which you probably know very well. Today, well, luck- I feel like luckiest man on yeah. the face of the earth. Yeah, well, I didn't say that. I keep thinking about this thing I read the other day about Ted Turner. He says, I don't want on my tombstone. He never owned a network, you know. He doesn't want to die before he owns a network. See, what we've done, we've got a form of brainwashing going on. Owning things is good. Private property is good. Having lots of money is good. More and more money is good. It's all on the material level. Who is saying, hey, the most important things in life material. Love, friendship, having some spiritual connection, being in a community of loving people has nothing to do with commercialism, has nothing to do with ownership, has nothing to do with money. And people are so conditioned and so befogged that they have no perspective on what's important. That's not what I mean by detachment. I mean by it, you let yourself be in the experience, and then going through it enables you then to be detached. You don't go through it, you're avoiding or denying it, which is very different. Well, okay, let's take an example of, of um, grieving, okay, over a lost uh, whatever. Friend. Okay, or grieving over a lost friend. How do you suddenly go from that to detachment? Not suddenly. You were born, you've cried. You know there's a natural end to your tears. You don't cry forever. So when that natural end comes, you say, okay, that's enough for now. I'm going to go on with my life. Because if you don't have deep, deep feelings for each other, what's life about? You're always afraid to feel deeply because you're going to lose somebody. Then you're missing out on life. My generation gets married and gets divorced very quickly. Uh, yeah. It's like, if it's not working now, they're really not concerned about the yeah. long range. It's just not working now. We're going to be out of it now. And they don't really think about where they're going to be at your age. What, what wisdom can you shed on that kind of... There is no foundation, no secure ground upon which people to stand now if it isn't in the family. Not much in the society or in a workplace is going to support you. And if you don't have that support and love and caring and concern in the family, I don't think you have very much. 
Now, the poor kids that get divorced, I think they're, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know why they got married in the first place. They haven't figured out what they want from a partner. They don't know who they are. So who's marrying whom? I can't go shopping. I can't take care of all the things that have to be taken. I can't put out the garbage. I can't take care of the bank accounts. But I can take care and look at what I think is important in life. Mm -hmm. So I have both the leisure and the time and the impulse to do that. So basically you're saying the key to life is finding someone else to take out the garbage for <laughs> you. That way you'd have enough time to concentrate on the people. Uh, well, I've figured it out now. I feel uh, much better. <coughs> That's uh, <coughs> an easy question, really. Whenever people have asked me about having children, I don't say to them, have them, I don't have them. I say, there's no other experience that can substitute for it. There's no way of substituting for it. So I would not want to have missed that experience, even though you pay a painful price at the end. Used to go every Wednesday night to a church hall where they held something called Dance Free. It wasn't free monetarily. You paid money to get in. But you could dance in any way you wanted. By yourself, with another man, with a woman. Then there's great music, all these psychedelic lights. I was the oldest guy there. People come up, meet friends of mine, they say, they talk about it, oh, I remember that guy. He was far out, huh. and I would go like crazy. I revised my aphorism, and I really believe this to be true, that the only road to survival is for taking responsibility to and for each other with compassion. If we don't, I don't think we're going to make it.